Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. This show is written, produced, and is broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to the settlers as the Bay Area. On tonight's show, we'll share clips of my interview with South Africa's tour guide and educator, Wilson Chifike, and his inside assessment on colonialism, apartheid, and land reclamation in South Africa and Zimbabwe. You'll also learn a bit about his tribe, the Shona, and if you visit our website again, if you visit our website after the show, kpfaapprentice.org, we'll include a bonus segment all about African tourism, including an enticing layout of a two-month camping trip through Africa. We are your Full Circle hosts this evening, Casey and Stevie G. Stay tuned. Good evening, everyone, and again, welcome to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley and KPFA.org. And now, the show. All right. So here in the studio, we have KC and Stevie G. My first trip to Africa would be a solo trip to Rwanda, wandering the streets of Kigali with a sense of belonging, surrounded by history and culture while sampling food, hitching rides on motorbikes and connecting with my African brothers and sisters, and leave feeling enriched by the experience, grateful for my expanded view of the world on a continent that welcomed me home. But instead, my first trip to Africa, the mother continent, the land of black people, was to Cape Town, South Africa, on a girl's trip with women I didn't know very well. It was a trip to be forgotten. Intellectually, I knew that South Africa was still recovering from the evil and oppressive system of apartheid. I knew this. But emotionally, I was not prepared to see colonialism in Africa up close. I wasn't prepared to see the stark economic disparity between the races or the psychological residue from centuries of systemic cruelty, lies, and degradation born from European lust, entitlement, hatred, and greed. I wasn't prepared for how normalized the imbalance in power and wealth had become with the whites on top in positions of authority and blacks on the bottom to serve them. To keep my wits about me, I reflected constantly on the lectures and writings of Dr. Ben Yohannikin, Chancellor Williams, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, and other black scholars to remind me in the midst of the absurdity of black greatness and our stolen lands and stolen legacies that shaped the entire world. The injustice of land theft by white invaders and the imbalance of power and wealth propagated by the white population living in Africa was disgusting and truly disturbing to my spirit. I was baffled. Was there a global hypnosis? 
White dominion and black and brown subjugation is not an immutable law of the universe. And I pondered a world dismantled of the idea of white supremacy, this status quo that has permeated and destabilized countries across the globe and negatively impacted human lives, both black and brown. Landing in Cape Town was like traveling 10,000 miles just to end up in San Francisco where I started. Where was the African culture? Or worse, it was like arriving black in Mississippi 100 years earlier, except the streets were now paved and the meals gourmet. Witnessing black people in their own land, in positions of service to white people, and many relegated to overpopulated slum neighborhoods or townships, with some forced to beg for work at the foothills of affluent white neighborhoods, while nearly every aspect of society demarcated by race made my stomach hurt. And witnessing the seeming indifference of some of my fellow travel mates was hopelessly disheartening to my soul. One of the redeeming aspects of the trip was meeting Wilson Chafike, our guide in Cape Town. Wilson was an abundance of positivity and good cheer and possessed a wealth of knowledge and information. Take a listen. My name is Wolfgang Chifike. I'm a student of economics, politics, and history. Besides that, I've got a fair understanding of not just South African and Zimbabwean history, but Southern and East African history in general. The economics as well, social dynamics, ethnic groups. I've got a fair understanding of quite a number of languages. Very fluent in, well, obviously English, because that was the modem of tuition. That was the language we were taught in at school in Zimbabwe. Shona, which is my home language, and its group, obviously with subdivisions within the ethnicity in Zimbabwe. I speak a fair amount of Ndebele, which is an offshoot of Zulu, which is South African. And I speak a fair amount of Tosa. You've got to say it with a click, otherwise it doesn't quite sound right. That is the second largest ethnic grouping in South Africa. I was born in 1980, which is the year that Zimbabwe won its independence from Britain. It was a time when things were changing. You know, a lot of Western East African countries had already won their independence. So the generation before me that went to school in the 70s went to schools that were demarcated by race. So black children went to black-only schools. People of Asian origin went to schools of their own, and then white children went to schools of their own. Everything was determined by race, the same way South Africa had apartheid. Zimbabwe had a very similar blueprint system. And what you call colored in America is a totally different meaning here. In Southern and East Africa, any colored person is a person of mixed heritage. So... A black and white parent make a colored child. An Indian and a white parent make a colored child. So that colored population, that mixed race population, had schools of their own. People all lived in separate neighborhoods. And, you know, transport, everything was determined by race. Obviously, your white population being in charge allocated more resources to themselves than they did to everybody else, even though they were a minority 
the same, the same way South Africa was, where the social system, the economic structure, was designed to take advantage of the majority to benefit the minority. So take note of that. Take advantage of the majority to benefit a minority. So I was born in June 1980, which was two months after Zimbabwe won its independence. And my dad then was a headmaster, a junior primary school headmaster. My mom was a junior primary school teacher. And by December of 1980, they had moved out of a blacks only township or settlement or neighborhood into the more affluent what was previously white only neighborhood between 1980 1983 this is obviously long before my memory starts kicking in out of a neighborhood of approximately a hundred households we were the only black family there and then the family that moved in next door to us was the second black family in the neighborhood. My earliest memories are of, you know, a very sort of peaceful country. There was a lot of chaos going on behind the scenes because to gain independence, Zimbabwe had to go through some sort of a civil war, which then led to an inevitable settlement at some point because of the casualties. You know, we grew up in a society that was beginning to integrate. I must indicate that after independence, a lot or the majority of the white population left Zimbabwe, those that were unwilling to integrate with other races, those that were willing stayed, and it was a very open-minded bunch of people. Of my two years in nursery school and seven years in junior school, only two of my teachers, only two years then of that nine years of pre-high school education were black. All my other teachers were white, and we got along. But even with my junior school mates, we still get along. The color thing only got pronounced later on in our lives. In our formative years, it didn't exist or we didn't see it. You know, it was a very conveniently peaceful, integrated society. You know, we got along. The fondest memories of Zimbabwe are of our early years. Going into our teens, you start becoming aware of things, and you sit in history class, and then you're taught the history of the country. And, you know, you become aware of things, you start questioning certain things. And back then, I'm sure the world knows of a man called Robert Mugabe. Then, our idol, he questioned how and why, you know, they had to go to war 
to fix a society that was designed to benefit a minority at the expense of the majority. It was a very pertinent question. It's something that needed to be addressed. It still, up till now, needs to be addressed because this thing was the country had won independence, but independence in quotes, because after school, it was the black children knocking on white doors looking for jobs. You know, so effectively, the independence that they fought for was artificial. It was a settlement made by people who had gone for decades, totally refusing to settle, you know, with people of other races. And when I talk of settling people of other races, there was nowhere where the local or indigenous population was fighting for superiority. They were fighting for equality, which in so many ways just doesn't make sense. If you have people that walk in to your territory and design systems to govern you, systems that take advantage of the local populace as a people, and then you go to war because there are people that are not willing to settle or negotiate in any way. At some point, they realize that, hold on a second, we are a minority and we will get wiped out and force you into settlements with concessions and agreements that are all one-sided to suit them. Between 1980 and, say, about 1999, nothing really shifted economically in Zimbabwe. It was a year before I then went to college that chaos started brewing in Zimbabwe. Um, Mugabe, being the person he is, like every, or like the majority of African leaders as well, he's got his flaws. But he took the unprecedented step of taking back by force what was stolen from the black population by force. The idea, and this is my personal opinion, the idea, the concept, 100%. The way in which it was done, though, was something that no human being can ever agree with. And it was at a time when Mugabe was in had been in charge for 20 years, which is long overdue, really, for change. And he obviously had people around him who, by hook and crook, kept him in power and hijacked what was something that came with very good intentions to empower people and turned it into a whole smash and grab, loot as much as you can type of thing. And the economy in Zimbabwe collapsed. Finishing college in 2002, things had started degenerating. This was a country that produced more than it consumed, known as the breadbasket of Africa. And, you know, from hero to zero in the space of months, because the major bone of contention was from at least 67%, 67 to 70% of the country was in the hands of less than 6,000 white farmers. So Mugabe supporters literally walked onto these farms and took them back, hijacked everything and took it back. These are people that have got no understanding of economics or farming. And that is what drove Zimbabwe's economic collapse. Some people want to say because Zimbabwe is under sanction, things are not right. But I beg to differ. And this is from my experience. 
practical experience and inside knowledge on how economics in this part of the world works. Zimbabwe is where it is, surely because of corruption, bad governance, nepotism, and cronyism. That collapse in Zimbabwe led to an election in 2008, which Mugabe lost, but election results were held off for well over a month because they were being adopted, which led to an election rerun, which Mugabe won with about 97%. And 2009, the year after that election, is the year that I decided to just relocate and go somewhere else because things had really gone topsy-turvy. You know, you could Google on the internet and you'll see record inflation. I left Zimbabwe at a time when everybody was a trillionaire, not just a billionaire. Those were the days where you could walk into a shop and bread is going, say, for example, 100 million for a loaf of bread at 8 in the morning. Now you buy that loaf of bread, you enjoy it with friends at lunchtime, you go back just before the shop closes to buy the same loaf of bread, you find that same loaf of bread going for 300 million. Things were literally changing by the hour. It was insane. It was crazy. Couldn't keep up. And that's when systems collapsed because there were so many zeros in this financial system computers and gadgets could just not keep up and you know 2009 i just decided to relocate to south africa because the tourism industry had suffered a lot as well from the negative publicity you know which is very sad because despite all that chaos zimbabwe has always been a safer destination than even south africa which is by far more popular take the economics aside Every other tourist destination in Zimbabwe is still prime and because it's not overpopulated, you know, people will get time to enjoy it. Obviously, getting around even up till now is still a bit of a challenge because of fuel shortages. But with the right kind of planning, there is absolutely no reason why tourists wouldn't go into Zimbabwe. So I relocated to South Africa. And every other time we did a trip, you know, a lot of people would be very concerned about Zimbabwe. I mean, travel warnings were issued, but being there for three days at a time left people dumbfounded. People were shocked. Like, hold on a second. People are smiling here. People are happy here. You know, we see and read one thing and we come and experience the exact opposite. You know, and I'd get a lot of people questioning, you often, can you explain what's going on here? And I'd explain that, you know, the image portrayed by the press is portrayed to suit certain specific agenda, you know, and the situation on the ground is totally different. So in a nutshell, no amount of talking, you know, can express or paint a picture of the fond memories I have of my childhood. And despite the chaos, it's terrible to an extent, but not entirely as bad as people are made to believe it is. Welcome back. You are listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. I am in the studio with KC, and I am your co-host, Stevie G. And that was educated and tour guide Mr. Wilson Shafike with his assessment of colonialism in South Africa and in Zimbabwe. I'd like to take this uh, quick second and just make sure that you've heard that we've had to actually extend our fun drive for the first time in about five years. And we would like you to make a donation to KPFA. So what we want you to remember is, hey, KPFA. That number is 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY. 
KPFA. 439-5732. Excuse me. 1-800-439-5732. And you can also make a very, very secure, safe donation at kpfa.org. Now, you can also get some gear. There's lots of gear coming up. There's a hoodie. There's some socks. I need some socks. I always need some socks. There's a shirt. There's a bag. There's all types of stuff that just says, we love you, KPFA. Come in. Pick us up. We need you. We want you. So having said that, getting back to our show, uh, you know, uh, Zimbabwe used to be known at that time of independence, uh, Rhodesia, and then northern Rhodesia was uh, Zambia. So uh, with Zimbabwe and independence, we're going to get back into part two with Wilson Shafike discussing Zimbabwean independence and what followed. I wanted to ask you about the white minority group in Zimbabwe. Where did they originate from? They actually trekked from South Africa, sponsored by a gentleman called Cecil John Rose, who was doing this all on behalf of the British Empire. And he had a dream to connect Cape Town and Cairo. He actually sponsored a railway that he wanted to build from Cape Town all the way up to Cairo. So he was the driving force and main sponsor behind the first uh, trek into Zimbabwe, which came in from South Africa. The white South Africans, it all started in 1652, when the Dutch won a race to take control of what was then the Cape of Good Hope, still is the Cape of Good Hope. You know, the name actually changed, I think, in 1656. But the major colonial driving forces back then were obviously your British, your French, and the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the Spanish. They were fighting to control the Cape because that was your trade route to the Far East and India. The Suez Canal wasn't built then. Suez Canal did not exist. So there was a major battle between those colonial powers to set up a base station around the Cape that would then allow, you know, replenishing of ships, fixing of ships, before they then carried on to the Far East. The Dutch won it and set up shop or set up the colony in Cape Town in 1652 under Jan van Riebeck. Obviously, a lot of Dutch settlers came in, but there was the French that also came in because there were big issues between the Catholic Church and the Protestants in France. And the second governor of the province, Simon van der Stel, brokered a deal with the Dutch government. He had his motives behind it because he had grown some vineyards and he knew the French were expert winemakers. That was the actual motive. But then the official presentation to the Dutch government was bring them over, we need farmers to settle. So there's a very strong French influence as well. The British only came in just over a century later, after realizing the importance of the Cape, what was then the Cape Dutch colony. And in 1893, they had effectively taken over completely from the Dutch. That's when a lot of English-speaking British people came in. The colonial language was changed from Dutch to English. The French had been diluted already over the course of almost two centuries. So your major British population came in around about 1893. That's when the majority of them came in. And so how was the white population driven out of Zimbabwe? Well, between them and independence, obviously the system then was designed to be very attractive to the white population. 
And it's independent, you know, after the long civil war that had started in 1968. A lot of them felt that there was going to be retribution. Mugabe had also been in jail at some point for 11 whole years. And for those that thought they knew him well, they suspected very much that retribution was going to come their way. I mean, if you locked me up in your back room for over 50 years and I try and break the door, and at some point the neighbors hear it and people come and negotiate a settlement, when that door is opened, won't you be scared that this guy is just going to come out like a raging bull and do damage? Mugabe had advisors, obviously, and they settled with him. And he spoke of everybody getting together to build the country. It is a principle or doctrine that those that decided to leave were not willing to live with. Now, leading into the election, a lot of them had even said that black majority rule or transfer of power from the white minority to the black majority was a complete disaster, something that they did not agree with, something they could not fathom. And South Africa, being apartheid South Africa as well, which upheld that system, was a very attractive destination for them. So at independence, Obviously, Mugabe won the election by a landslide victory. Uh, they just decided, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a decision that wasn't an overnight decision, but these are people that could not live side by side with black people. You know, they are people that were brought up to believe that they were superior in every way, and they could not function in a society that put everybody at par. They couldn't. They did not want to send their children to the same school with black children. They did not want to get into pubs and sit and share the same glasses that black people would drink out of. Absolutely not. For them, it was unthinkable. There was absolutely no way. And they left. So there was a group that left voluntarily. Were any driven out by force? Not in 1980. Nobody back then was taken out by force. What then happened in the year 2000, when farm invasions began, that's when the forced movements took place because veterans of the War of Liberation had all rallied behind Mugabe. Based on his statements that 20 years after independence, people were integrated, but there was no real advancement of the black person and hence the reference to two black children that would finish school, getting to college with the same qualification and going to sit in an interview. There was always the notion that the white child was at an advantage, not because they're better qualified, more intelligent or a more efficient worker, but was at an advantage purely because of their skin color. So the, the reference people made to the indoctrination during the time that they were training as guerrilla fighters during the war, that they dragged with them as motivation and inspiration for those forced farm invasions. Because remember, 67 to 70% of the country was in the hands of less than 6,000 white farmers. And their thing was, we went to war. These people... Sorry to say, the white people are still at 
an advantage socially and economically, and we cannot say we are independent until we own everything. So that was obviously the last nail in the coffin, and a lot of them left then. Welcome back to Full Circle, right on KPFA 94.1 FM. Again, that was the voice of Educator and your guide, Wilson Shafike. I'm in the studio with KC, and I'm the co-host, Stevie G. And it's been a bit heavy. So with that, we might want to lighten your load. And I think we can do that with some fun drive information. So let's say 1-800-K, excuse me, 1-800-HEY-KPFA. That number is 1-800-439-5732. And also online at kpfa.org. And we'd like to thank you again for staying with us. We're going to take a quick comedic break with South African comedian Trevor Noah with a clip from his appearance on the John Bishop Show. Hey, Trevor Noah. My name is Trevor Noah, and I'm uh, I'm from uh, South Africa. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is not my first time in the UK, but every time I come here, I, I get increasingly more and more nervous. Every time I come in, I feel like it gets increasingly harder and harder to come into the country. Though your border is very, very strict. Like they ask a lot of questions. Questions I often know the answers to, but uh, I find they'll make you doubt. You know, I remember I got here two days ago, and the guy was really interesting on this occasion. He got my passport, to which he replies, uh, "Is this you?" <laughs> Never before have I felt so much pressure. <laughs> like myself. He asked question after question. So, how long are you going to be out here for? I said, um, four days. I said, four days? Is that right? I said, y- yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? So I'm doing a comedy show. Oh, comedy? Are you a comedian? <laughs> yes. Oh, you don't look funny. <laughs> Do you have any jokes? So I checked them in with my luggage. Was that one of them? No. I'm sorry. Right, I need, I need to know the address of where you're performing, sir. So I, I don't know the address. Well, then I can't let you in. I said, well, you, you've got to believe me. I wouldn't lie about that. I'm, I'm just here to do a show and then I'm leaving. Well, I don't know that you're going to leave, sir. They always ask these questions, making it seem like absolutely everybody wants to come and stay in the UK. Like, I, I almost wanted to say to him, it's not as great as you think. <laughs> It really is. Like, no, don't get me wrong. I understand right now it's easy to be arrogant because you're having your five days of summer, but it's not <laughs> as great as you think. I was just asking question after question. And then he said something that was very true, very sincere. He said to me, he said, so you've got to understand, I'm not trying to be a hard-ass about this, but I can't just believe you here to do what you say you're going to do. You could do something else. I was like, well, you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. That's a great attitude to have. It's an attitude I wish we had in South Africa when the British first arrived. <laughs> it saved us a lot of pain. Because we had no clue. We had no That was the greatest trick the British ever pulled. They just pitched up on the shores of Africa. <laughs> we have discovered this land. People came out like, hey, hey. Oh, look at that. We have discovered people! <laughs> no, we, we were here first. What are you doing here? Uh, we're here for a comedy show. <laughs> ah, come on in. Bang, 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 bang. Ah, that wasn't funny. <laughs> and they took over. 
over. They took over. I was like, I always think about those things. The guy's pitching up in the country. No one speaks the language. That must be the most awkward thing ever. The guy's pitching up in the ship. Is he shouting at the guys? You over there. What is the name of this land? No, no. I said, who are you? Oh, this is horrible. We have to teach them English. A, B, C. A, B, C. A, B, C. That's a lot better. It's a fun game, colonization. It really was. It's the most arrogant form of patriotism when you think about it, you know? It must have been cool. Like, I wonder what Britain was like back then, when it was so great that you guys wanted to go make it somewhere else. Like, you know, oh, this is wonderful. We should do it everywhere. That's really what it was. Colonization all over the world. What's weird to me, though, is like how people act like colonization never happened. I don't like that. Like, it's weird when people say, well, all these bloody foreigners coming into the UK, all these bloody foreigners. Well, it's because you told them about the UK. You gotta understand, in the world, we did not care for this place at all. No one knew about Great Britain. In India, they were having a good time. The British went and told the Indians about Great Britain. They were having fun with elephants and spices. They had no need to come to this country. But the British got there and they were like, Hear ye, hear ye of Great Britain! Okay, first of all, you could have started with hello. That was a brash entrance. I don't think it was necessary. Have you heard of Great Britain? No, we have not and you don't need to shout. I'm right over here. I don't know why you're talking like that. You need to learn of Great Britain and come and see it. No, no, we're fine. India is a perfectly wonderful place. I don't know how great your land is considering the, your complexion. It doesn't look like you have much sun. I don't know if I want to go to a place like that. How dare you insult the land of the Queen? Do you know the one true God? No, no, we have many gods here. Many, many gods. You need one God, our God. Well, well, our gods are already in the positions, so uh, if anything opens up, we'll let you know. Do you not know that Jesus loves you? I do not know of Jesus, but uh, if you introduce me, maybe I could learn to love him too. But uh, right now, I'm currently in a relationship. How dare you? Jesus loves you! Ah, okay, 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 I get it, I get it. I can feel the love of Jesus now. Please, no more Jesus, it hurts, it hurts so much. It's been a crazy experience. But it's colonization done right. That's what I truly enjoy. The British did it perfectly. Yeah, because now we're friends. We all speak the same languages. We even have a games where we participate together. The Commonwealth Games, ironically named. There was nothing common about it. The wealth was in one place. Right, let's forget everything that happened and let's play some games together. Horses, where you're from? No, we don't. Yeah, we're gonna dance horses. Let's do dancing horses. This is fun. <laughs> Jamaica, are you gonna be joining in? No, we're never gonna join in. Your people don't wanna admit what you did to us. We're not gonna play your games. <laughs> give us back our sugar, give us back our people, give us back our gold. Well, we can't do that. That's ridiculous. But come and run with us. Will you give us back the gold? No, we won't. But we'll let you win it back one medal at a time. <laughs> you guys have been fun. Thanks for having me. Welcome back once more. You are listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. You just heard a clip of Trevor Noah's stand-up from his appearance on the John Bishop Show. And before that, Zimbabwean educator and Africa's tour guide, Wilson Chafike. Now let's take a music break. 
This is Sowa by Malian singer and songwriter Fatumata Jirwaha. Sowa Ayi Sowa 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 This is Full Circle on the Pacifica Mothership, KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. I'm here in the studio with co-hosts Casey and Stevie G. And that song you just heard was Soa by Malian singer and songwriter Fatumata Jirwaha. And it was amazing, especially her use of space. If you noticed that, there was cuts and that space just picked up was right on time. That's what we want. That's the world. That's music. That's life. And speaking about life, the lifeblood of KPFA is in need of a little infusion of some financial blood. 
We're here trying to extend the fun drive. Hey, KPFA, that number is 1-800-439-5732. You can also reach us and make a secure donation at kpfa.org. And we really need your support. We want to continue what we're bringing you. We're bringing you the live music. We're bringing you the songs. We're bringing you the history. We're bringing you the news and the commentary. We're bringing you all those things. And to represent that, we have some beautiful gifts for you. We've got the KPFA hoodie. We've got the shirt. We've got the socks. And we also have some archival material. You know, uh, today happens to be James Baldwin's birthday. That is August 2nd, James Baldwin. And he is part of the archives, Voices That Changed the World. So the KPFA archives are here as well. So a lot of things are available. 1-800-439-5732 and kpfa.org. Now, let's continue with our African tour guide and educator, Wilson Shafike. Land and land ownership has been a hot topic in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Up next, Wilson speaks about what has been happening with original Africans, black Africans looking to reclaim the land. Apartheid apologists, your time is over. You will not rule again. We do not fear you. Finally, the land is ours. This is one of the tweets that's caused a social media uproar. The daughter of former President Nelson Mandela and Winnie Matigizela Mandela has kept social media buzzing for days, and her tweets have been trending. The DA says her comments are divisive and warrant that she be recalled. But the FF has come out in her defense on what they call a racist onslaught. The Department of International Relations says it's still verifying the authenticity of the Twitter account. We are currently trying to um, find out exactly what the source of these tweets are and uh, what occasioned uh, the, resp- the need to respond uh, in the way that uh, the ambassador has done. One South African who has defended the ambassador says some white South Africans are in denial. The land debate in this country to me shouldn't necessarily even involve white people. White people were the oppressors, they were the, th- the thieves. Um, I, I sit here as a white person, like every other white person in this country, and uh, I, I enjoy the benefits daily. This political analyst says Mandela's tweets have revealed the failures of the reconciliation project. He says recalling her would be a mistake. To be saying to black South Africans, you are not allowed to issue or make statements that are true, that there is no room for any black person in this country representing this government who is going to uh, create discomfort in terms of white interest. Meanwhile, the Nelson Mandela Foundation has denied media reports that it has requested a meeting with the ambassador. For now, the debate rages on and the comment sections are filled with South Africans weighing in. Slinda Lomasigan, Johannesburg. Colonialism was about European powers coming in, partitioning Africa like a piece of cake for themselves and taking land. Land is the most crucial resource. If people take ownership of a piece of land, they are in control of everything, right down to economics, or mainly economics. And reclamation of land is just one 
step in the process to complete independence. Because by virtue of being in control of a society or community's resources, you can then, in so many ways, determine firstly the allocation of the resources as well as the exploitation or extraction of the resources. So the Zimbabwean step in so many ways is unprecedented because in so many other countries, yes, independence was given, South Africa is a prime example, and 24-odd years or 25-odd years after independence now, people don't see or feel the tangible change. Yes, signs written no blacks allowed were taken down, or white only were taken down. But besides that, nothing else has really changed. So are you in support of land reclamation? Yes, very much so. 100%. It is an inevitable process that has to be done. The application or methodology is debatable, but the process that has to be engaged in. And a perfect example of how thorny it is is how Zimbabwe had adopted the willing seller willing buy a scheme, South Africa is the same scheme, but nobody is willing to give up land, absolutely not. Welcome back. You are listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. I am Stevie G, and I'm with my co-host KC and our discussion with African tour guide and educator Wilson Shafike. Wilson talked about race and land, Zimbabwean independence and land reclamation. Very, very important. And I think what I was hearing there was uh, he was speaking about um, some of the surface things that were done by taking down the signs, the white-only signs, you know, the black-only signs or the African-only signs and doing away with that. Yet where was the other piece that said we're going to strategically move and work within building this system up appropriately and in a just way, you know? Right. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, the fact that we're aware means that we have to make everyone aware and have everyone move forward. So let's uh, move on and tell us a bit about, uh, we'll have Mr. Wilson Shafike continue and move on and tell us a little bit about his tribe, the Shona of Zimbabwe. So you belong to the Shona. Can you tell us a little bit about your tribe and explain the idea of tribal communities and their function from the African point of view as opposed to the European understanding of what a tribe is? It must be noted that the Shona can be further split into several other sub-ethnic groups. So you have your Zezuru, and they are from mainly central Zimbabwe. They have sub-ethnic groups in them, which are the Buja, Gola, Tande, Tavara, Nyongwe, Punde, Shangwe. Um, the largest out of the Shona ethnic groups, which is where you know, I'm also from, is the Karanga, which is mainly in the central and southern part of Zimbabwe. We also have sub-ethnic groups amongst us, the Duma, Jiva, Jena, Mari, Ngora, Nyobi, Kolera. They're there a lot. Then there's the northern Shona, which is the Kore Kore. 
and they also have the sub-ethnic groups, you know, the Shawasha, Gorambire, Tsunga, Kachipaka, Harara, Nowe, Njanja, Nobu, Kwasimba, you know, it's, it's, it's a very broad term, but generally the southern central eastern part of Zimbabwe is all Shona speaking sub-people. The far east, you've got your Manika or Manika people, we are part of the Bantu who migrated from mainly Central Africa into Southern Africa. One note I'm very proud of, being Karanga and part of what was the Rosie Nation that built Great Zimbabwe, which when it was discovered, Europeans did not believe that such a magnificent structure could have been built by ethnic black Africans and attributed its construction to Persian or Asian traders. The Shona people are a very community-based people. We believe first in the community before the individual. So anything you say or do is always guided by the community in general. The communal element exists. It's very prevalent. Um, right down to even the way our homes are set up in our rural homes. This is something that takes quite a bit of understanding. I'll do my best to explain it. But while I was born in an urban area, we have our rural home, which is where my dad was born and grew up. In the rural home, you find the core family home, would be somewhere central. And then as generations grow and marriages are done, you'll find a lot of close relatives would live within the proximity of the core rural home. So what you then find technically is one family populating a village. The most interesting thing is we don't have a word that directly translates into a cousin. It's just non-existent in our culture. Everybody is a brother and a sister. So children are raised communally. Children do not belong to the parents. They belong to the family. Even when it comes to cultivating fields, people or the family would take turns in one particular family unit field. It's a communal responsibility. If, for example, one particular family unit was struggling, everybody jumps in to assist. It's a communal responsibility. One parent passes away, the community takes charge. And because of the way our traditional lives were structured, that was very easy because the whole family was literally in within the same vicinity. And if anybody needed anything, you know, just one message and the little child would run from one homestead to the next. You know, you are doing it for family. It's a family thing. And I, I would say it's a quality and a lifestyle that I adore. It's not unique just to the Shona people. You know, we, the general Bantu people's sort of way of life is similar. There are other ethnic groups in Zimbabwe, the Debele, the Kalanga, 
and you find that you can't really detach much from one ethnic group to another because the origins of the people in general are more or less the same. Welcome back to Full Circle, KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm KC in the studio with the wonderful Stevie G. Again, we were just listening to educator and tour guide Wilson Chifike and learned a little bit about his tribe, the Shona of Zimbabwe. Up next, you will hear a discussion about the African mind and the separation of the African from African culture in order to assimilate and fit into a white standard, which over time has become the standard by which we we all are measured by. This idea of white supremacy has truly been a devastating and destructive myth that has stripped black people and people of color of not only land, but self-worth, cultural pride, a past, and so on. Here's Wilson. I think the African is a very uncomplicated, very simple being who is very open-minded, very warm, and very welcoming. You know, welcoming to the point of being taken advantage of. The dynamics of how the world runs is clear. Greed has shaped and driven the world to be what it is. You know, the Congo, for example, is a country that should technically be the leading economy in the world with Zimbabwe, South Africa, Zambia, right up there. You know, say for South Africa, which is, which the economy is so driven by white people, Zimbabwe, Zambia, you know, are not too far off in terms of being as bad as the Congo, purely because steps were taken to empower locals who are custodians of the land. You know, its heritage has been left to them but the fact that they decided to rock the boat and take back what naturally belongs to them. You know, the world cannot really afford to have such systems succeed. And why I say that is to start with the USA. If these schemes succeeded here, your American Indians would then have something to say. Then look at Australia and the Aborigines. They would also have something to say. So for as long as these schemes succeed, it will rock the world in so many ways and disturb white privilege. So if the powers will always make sure and interfere so much that land, yeah, reclamation is a good word, but reappropriation is more correct. You know, as long as that succeeds, then yeah, it, it's just a kind of thing that will open up in the world. Do you believe Africans globally have been separated from the African mind and Africanness? Okay, the moment you are detached from home, something in you is killed off. You know, a tree cannot grow without a tree. And home and your land is your root. The moment you're detached from that, you're like an uprooted plant. Yes, you might survive in an alien environment, but it's never the same is actually being at home. Again, it's all driven by greed, and the purpose of detachment or displacement was never done with good intention. It was done to disenfranchise the black man, you know, and detach the black man from his blackness. And then, you know, consequently, it's then 
much easier to control, exploit, and take advantage of the black man or the African. Much, much easier to control because what you effectively do is put them in a position where they question their being, their customs, their traditions, their way of life, and actually force them to adopt, adopt a foreign way of life and the norm. Right, and reject their own. Colonial system is a system that divided and conquered and amplified ethnic differences to switch their agenda. You know, these are these are societies and communities that lived for centuries and thrive. You know, they were functional societies, functional economies, but the, what colonialization or colonialism did was destroy all of that. to Full Circle on 94.1, excuse me, KPFA 94.1 FM. And we want to thank educator and tour guide Wilson Shafike for his time and contribution to this episode. Again, the song Soma with Fatumata Jirwaha. Sowa. Sowa. I'm sorry. Sowa. Sowa. Great song for a great time and great understanding and learning. Um... Listen, that brings us to the end of our show tonight. So please visit our website, K- excuse me, our website, kpfaapprentice.org for archive shows, as well as bonus material from tonight's show. Tune in next week for your host, Free Will and Franklin, on police brutality and victims and victims' families. And please remember that we are still in the middle of the fun drive. We still have some fun drive time left. The number, 1-800-439-5732. And that's Hey KPFA, 1-800-439-5732. And you can also reach us at kpfa.org to make a safe donation. And we want to thank our executive producer, Miss M, our technical director, Free Will and Franklin, Joy Moore, our production consultant, uh, Board Up, Sharon Peterson, and our tech assist, Hannah Wilson. And thank you all for joining us tonight on Full Circle. We are your hosts, KC and Stevie G. Stay tuned now for La Onda Bajita. And let's remember, let's remember again, it's fun drive time. We want to keep it moving, keep it grooving, keep those funds. Want to lighten those pockets a little bit and help us out. You know, if you need some socks, it's cold at night out here in the Bay Area. So if you need some hoodies, you need some socks, it's uh, 1-800-K, excuse me, 1-800-HEY-KPFA. That's 800-439-5732 and kpfa.org. And remember, today is August 2nd. That's James Baldwin's birthday. So the Pacifica Foundation has voices that change the world. There are lots of speeches from James Baldwin out there. There's opportunity to get lots of things going and donating and also get some great material for yourself. Keep it moving. We appreciate all the support and thank you.